Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for a biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and Harvard University professor Annette Gordon-Reed. Her latest book, On Juneteenth, uniquely explores America's newly minted national holiday, June 19th. On Juneteenth was published by Liverite in May 2021. During a conversation we recorded on Zoom last month, I asked Annette Gordon-Reed if her book was part biography, part autobiography, and part history. Yes, I wanted to do something that was a hybrid of those things, uh, not all of one, with an emphasis on the history of Texas, but doing it through my family. Talking about family anecdotes is a way to open the door uh, for the discussion. And just in case there is someone who still isn't quite clear what this whole hubbub (laughs) about the Juneteenth holiday is all about, can you briefly explain June 19th significance? Okay. Juneteenth is a commemoration of June 19th, 1865, when the United States Army General Gordon Granger came to Galveston, Texas to take over Texas. Uh, The Confederates had finally surrendered and the Army of the Trans-Mississippi had surrendered at the beginning of June. And Granger went there with troops to make the announcement that slavery was over and to take over that area. A lot of people think that Civil War ended in April when Lee surrendered, Mm -hmm. but they kept fighting in the Southwest. And so that's why it took until June 19th, 1865 for the Union Army to take over and make this announcement. Right. Is it the end of slavery in America in general? No, it's not. The end of slavery legally takes place in December when the 13th Amendment is ratified. But this is the end of the military effort to maintain the system of slavery. That's when they finally gave up. And the Union Army was able to make this pronouncement about the largest state in the Union that slavery was over. Okay. In your book, you talk about the fact that the Juneteenth holiday is really an integral part of uh, life in Texas and is celebrated by Blacks and whites and people in general in the state. (laughs) And you write, it appears on its way to becoming a national holiday. Did you have an inside track? (laughs) No, I did not have an inside track. I just knew that the year before, last year, It almost became a federal holiday, but I guess it was Ron Johnson. One senator objected to it, and so he blocked it. So I figured at some point, either he would give in or (laughs) uh, he might be replaced or whatever. Um, But I I had no inside track on this. It was kind of surprising that it happened so quickly. It did feel very, very quick. (laughs) Yeah. You know, on Wednesday, I guess the Senate voted, and on Thursday, the House voted, and the president was overseas, as far as I I recall. And then I got the email in the morning, you know, asking me to come down for the signing. And I thought, wow, this is like a whirlwind. How do you feel about this holiday becoming a national one and having distinctly Texan roots? Well, you know, I say in the book, when I first learned that people celebrated it outside of Texas, I felt a little possessive about it. I thought, 
this is a holiday for Black Texans, and then it's a holiday for Texans, and why are other people celebrating it? But that feeling lasted only shortly. Uh, I'm happy that it's taken place because it's a holiday that's built for history. You have to tell the story. What was it about? Who were the people involved? Why? And Black Texans have been celebrating for 156 years, and we know how to do that. And I think we'll be an example to other people. Almost every celebration that I've seen, sort of public celebration, has an educational component to it. And I hope that that remains. And the fun part of it, it's a family holiday. Mm -hmm. It's a holiday for people to getting together. And everybody can do that. Black people and white people can do that. But also keep in mind what it's about. You know, you um, describe yourself in the book as a historian of slavery. So why did you decide to use your own personal history to link to the largest societal uh, issues in history? Well, you know, it's not something I typically do. My work is about other people, (laughs) typically about other families, with an air of detachment about that, the way historians try to achieve. When I was growing up, and wanting to be a writer, I sort of thought of myself as doing this kind of writing, essays, uh, where I put myself into the story, my thoughts and my feelings into the writing in a way that I don't when I'm writing history. And I never thought of being a historian. I thought of myself as, as being a writer. So this was a return to that type of writing. It would be a way to talk to people across generations. I really wanted this book to be something that adults could read and also young people could read and take something from it. And I think people like personal stories. Mm -hmm. It's an immediate way to connect to the audience and get them to see the larger questions about Texas, about race, about history, all those things. It's an opening point when you are presenting yourself and showing a certain degree of vulnerability in telling your story, revealing things about yourself, I think it's a way for the readers to, you know, connect to the story in ways that it wouldn't be if I just said, you know, in 1836, this thing happened and blah, 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 blah. And since it's not either a straight autobiography or biography, you do have biographical elements in the book. So can you talk a little bit about some of the folks you selected to um, have biographical vignettes of people like Estebanico and Emily West. Yes, well, I used Estebanico to make the point that people of African descent have been in the Americas for a very long time, and certainly before the time period, probably when most people think um, they came to America, which would be 1619. That starts the story for most people because we're talking about British America. And of course, we focus on that because we speak English. But in fact, people of African descent were in the Americas from the 1500s. And Estebanico came to the area that is now Texas in the 1520s and was with Cabeza de Vaca, an explorer that kids probably would have heard about. Uh, He's one of the ones that's always mentioned. And He was shipwrecked, basically, with Cabeza de Vaca and two other men after an expedition that started out with a couple hundred people. And by the time they get to Texas, they've had, you know, shipwrecks and hurricanes, all these kinds of things. And they're down to four. And he ends up walking across parts of Texas and Mexico 
over to the Pacific seaboard with Cabeza de Vaca. He serves as a translator between um, the Europeans and some of the indigenous people they encounter. But I, I include that story because we think of Blacks in Americas, and the first thing that people think about is a plantation. And this guy's not on a plantation. I mean, he is enslaved, but when they are sort of lost in the expedition, all of that kind of breaks down a bit. But I wanted to show Black people in this time period doing lots of different things. And, and I mentioned in the book that there were other Blacks who we don't know. We know Estebanico's name, but there were other Blacks as well. And some of them were in Texas. Some of them went down to Mexico and started their own communities, were parts of their communities. And so it shows that people of African descent were all over the so-called new world doing all kinds of things. Emily West is interesting because she <laughs> figures in a story about Texas that wasn't commonly known when I was growing up. This is the story of the Yellow Rose of Texas. I'm sure people have heard that song. They play it at conventions. Anytime a woman from Texas shows up, they play the Yellow right. Rose of Texas, right? Right. And the song originally was a minstrel song, and it was about a Black woman. It was a person of African descent. The, the first lyric is, there's a yellow gal in Texas I'm going down to see. Well, they're talking about a Black woman. He says, no other darky loves her, not as much as me, or something like that. So she's obviously talking about African-American people. Um, over the years, the yellow gal from Texas mercifully was taken out. And they switched it to the Yellow Rose of Texas, which was a line. There was a line, the Yellow Rose of Texas. And they moved that up and called her Yellow Rose, you know, Yellow Rose and forget about the Yellow Girl business and the darky business, thank goodness. And so the story gets changed to become a story where there's a woman of African descent, Emily West, who is having sex with Santa Ana, the general and president of Mexico during the Battle of San Jacinto. And that's why they lost because he was caught by surprise because he was with her. And the story has become that she was sent there specifically to seduce him and to take up his time. And that's, and that's, that becomes a part of a way of bringing inclusion to making the story about the Alamo and the fight for Texas independence inclusive mm -hmm. by bringing mm -hmm. this black woman in it. Well, there was a black woman who was in Santa Ana's camp. She was captured by him. She was not a slave. Uh, she'd come down to work for a man as a servant. She was from New York and her name was Emily West. So there was a person in Santa Ana's camp. It is highly unlikely that Sam Houston brought her on board to be a spy for the Texas Republic. And this is a story that gets incorporated into the sort of yearly telling of the story of Texas independence because it gives people a chance to put a Black person, a person of African descent, into the story. And I just sort of comment on how, you know, that's a problematic way of doing it, because if she was having sex with Santa Ana, she had been kidnapped. I mean, she was being raped. And why would she be a spy for a republic that she couldn't live in? I mean, the Texas Republic specifically forbade free Black people from living there. Mm. unless, you know, you got permission, I suppose, maybe, maybe the story is she would have been given permission, but it's hard to see why, you know, a black woman would be so keen on having a republic that supported slavery when the Mexican government had outlawed slavery. I mean, that was part of the reason they broke away. So talking about that as this kind of weird attempt to include blacks in a particular story about Texas. Wow. Now, 
you're used to dealing with massive subjects, you know, Thomas <laughs> Jefferson, Sally Hammonds, Andrew Johnson. I mean, you know, you name it, <laughs> mm -hmm. if it's in the, that era. So because this is more a more contained or concise uh, approach, what kind of research did you do for this book? Well, since it is sort of a memoir, I'm looking at my family history. It, it is my view of, you know, of what I have been told, my view of our family history. But I did the other the kind of research that you can do. Most of it had to be online because this book was written during the pandemic. Mm. I couldn't go anywhere. And all of the primary documents that I, that I talk about are accessible online. And I sort of had my understanding of the way Texas history unfolded. And I checked it against other books that were you know, that I either bought online and could read them on Kindle and other databases that had articles and so forth. But it was fun, you know, to use, go through Ancestry.com and pull up deeds. And, you know, one of the most moving things that I found uh, was a voter registration list from 1867 with my great-great-grandfather's name on it. And I hadn't expected to see that at all. And it, it really meant a lot to me to think about a person who had been you know, treated as chattel, as property, and him, you know, there putting his name down to be able to vote, to participate in the governance of Texas and, and the United States. And so that's the kind of work I did, online stuff, which is amazing. I mean, when I first started writing back in the late 90s, I just remember having to go down to Virginia and pull out microfilm and put them in a machine and crank the machine up and, and and I was happy to be able to do that, grateful that it was on microfilm. This is wonderful. <laughs> but I was happy to have that stuff there. And now I could press a button and some of those same documents that I had to you know, get on a train and go down mm -hmm. to and spend days going through, I can just press a button and it's right there. Were a lot of documents not only digitally uh, accessible, but were they accessible more so now because of the public domain, we've, we've passed the copyright um, issue? Well, some of it, yes, but my, my, the things that I was using, like the Texas Republic and the, the Constitution, those kinds of things are all in the public domain. These are public documents. And the census records, all of that stuff you get, that's accessible to people. And that's, that's primarily what I was looking at. Now, still, there are lots of archives and stuff that, that haven't been, you're still gonna have to go uh, to those places and search all of that stuff out. But fortunately, for in, within the parameters of what I'm talking about, the Texas Republic, about you know desegregation, those kinds of things, there were plenty of material for me to look at that was in the public domain, has always been in, in the public domain. What about the story, which was fascinating for me, about the uh, creation of Emancipation Park in Houston? Mm -hmm. was information on how that came to be and then how the park evolved accessible digitally or online? Oh, yes. Yeah, there, there have been articles written about that. This was the story of four men, Black men, who in 1876 pooled their resources and buy land in Houston for the express purpose of celebrating Juneteenth. And it's a great story because the first thing to remember, and I should say, and I talk about this in the book, is that there are people who didn't like celebrations of Juneteenth. And during the first year when people were celebrating, there were people who got whipped for celebrating. In the aftermath of 
the end of the war and the loss of the loss of the war, not just in Texas, but all over the South, white people really sort of unleashed a torrent of violence on the freed people. And so, you know, this is a, you know, more than a decade after that, but still 1870s in Texas, it was, I mean, that's a rough time. And the idea of these people in the face of that, you know, pooling their resources and, and creating something, buying land and creating something, not just for themselves, but with the idea that this would be a, an annual thing, that people would keep this going, is very moving to me. So it was originally called, Juneteenth was called Emancipation Day, um, but it morphed into Juneteenth. And Emancipation Park is still there. You know, I've been to Emancipation Park for um, Juneteenth celebrations. Um, it's gone through you know, periods of times of when it was used less than other times, but now has come back in, in full force. And you think of something that's been there since the 1870s uh, for this express purpose. It shows the resilience and the stubbornness that these people had about this holiday. Mm, that's amazing. So do you see that Juneteenth and the elimination or the, the end of slavery in Texas has had far-reaching effects and that can be seen as a through line um, for the different eras since? Well, you know, it had enormous consequences and not all good consequences because it put in motion a lot of hostility on the part of whites and reaction against the freedom of, of African-Americans. There was a brief period during Reconstruction when there was an attempt to have a multiracial democracy. There were Black legislators and so forth and people of influence during that time period. And then it just, it went away once uh, Reconstruction was over. Um, they started back with what they called redemption, the redemption governments, which were basically whites coming in and having white, what they would have called a white man's government. And that reaction, nevertheless, did not stop the resilience, that word comes back up again, that people in, in, in the African-American community understood that they were going to have to struggle. And I think even the freedmen in 1865, when they were celebrating freedom, and not being treated legally like property anymore, understood that they were gonna be involved in a struggle. So the common theme that keeps going through this is struggle, some progress and reaction against that. Every time there is, uh, we move forward and not surprisingly, there's a backlash against mm -hmm. that. And that process started in those years when black people finally got moved out of the category of property and into the category of citizenship, there've been people who've been fighting that. And, you know, thinking about, I mentioned my great, great grandfather in the, uh, on the voters list, here we are <laughs> in <laughs> 2021 arguing about voting. So a lot of the issues are still the same here. Do Blacks get to participate as equal citizens in the governance of the United States? And there are some people who still have a problem with that. Okay. Um, I want to talk just briefly about your process for your other books, the biographies. How much, roughly, and then you probably don't have one size to call, <laughs> but how much time do you spend researching the figures that you worked on, like Jefferson and Sally Hemings, or like Andrew Johnson? And then when do you decide that, okay, mm -hmm. now I'm ready to write? Depends on the subject. Mm. I never stop researching. 
I don't say, okay, now I've got everything and now I'm going to start to write. I research enough to make me feel confident, confident enough to start writing. When people talk about writer's block and having writer's block, for me, writer's block comes when I have not done enough research or thought enough about what it is that I want to do. And then I have to go back and do research. I mean, much to my publisher's dismay, I'm changing the books, the writing all the way into page proofs, you know, to the point where I have to count the spaces in something that I want to change so that I don't change the pagination for the, for the writing there. Mm-hmm. I have changed books in the second printing. They know to come back and ask me and say- In the second printing, really? Oh yeah, sure, yes. They, they come back and ask me, is there anything you want to fix? And they know I typically always do. So <laughs> yes, uh, so researching goes on forever, but there is a point where I'm researching and researching and there's no magic formula to it. It's just that I get to a point where I say, now I think I have enough to speak confidently enough to write confidently enough that I can start. Mm -hmm. And then I go until I come upon a point where now I'm faltering. I don't have the confidence. I don't know what to say next. And then I go back and do more researching. But that the process of finding stuff never ends. Mm. When you embark on a project, you send in your proposal and your your publisher and your or your publisher and your agent say, this is it, go for it. Um, are you given a page limit or a word limit or are you just writing until you can get it done and then editing from there? I'm writing till I get it done and, and um, go from there. On Juneteenth, I had a page limit in the sense that we, we conceived of what kind of book we wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. We wanted a small book you know, that could be done quickly. Uh, I started working on this in July and I delivered it in September, you know, writing every day. So for this one, because we conceived of it as a short book from the beginning, I had a page limit, but the others, I mean, Hemings is 800 pages long, but um, no, I generally don't have a limit. Andrew Johnson, there was a limit because that is part of a series Mm. And all of those are 40,000 words. I mean, you know, that's the, that's the universe of the, the, the ballpark of what they want all of the other things to be. Other things I just write until I finish. And then what about getting access to illustrations, photographs, mm-hmm. that kind of thing? Well, I've paid for images. Um, I find the repository. A lot of those things have come on or in the public domain now, some of the things that I, you, some things that I paid, you know, a couple of thousand dollars for. Uh, but yeah, we're responsible for getting the images that we wanted and getting, and getting the licenses and the, and the permissions for uh, the things that we want to use. And my editor has an assistant who helps with that. In this one, we, we needed permission to use lyrics from the song Giant, uh, This Then Is Texas. And she was very helpful in tracking down who owned, you know, who, who was responsible for that and, and uh, you know, getting the right to reproduce the lyrics in the book. Uh, so that, those are all these kinds of things that people may not think about when you're, you're thinking about producing the text for these books. If you're gonna use images and lyrics and things from poems and so forth, you gotta, get, you gotta do that too. And I, I was really fortunate to have 
an editor who has a great assistant who could help me with that. And you know, because this book is is so personal, you're you're in it. You're you're really part of the the narration. Um, I'm surprised you didn't include any photographs of, say, your family or yourself as a <laughs> child and that kind of thing. Did you consider that or or what? I considered it and decided not to to do that because I didn't want the book to be really about my family. And if you'll notice in the book. I mentioned my mother's name and my father's name, but not the names of other members of my family. There are a couple of other people, my mother, Mrs. Reese, I mentioned, or my teachers, I might mention, because I figured that if I, use, my, I went back and forth with my editor about this, I think he wanted names. And I didn't want names because I didn't want the book to really be, I mean, the more names you put in, the more it becomes about your family. And mm -hmm. I really wanted my family just to be the sort of scaffolding or an entry point, whatever metaphor, to uh, to open up the story about Texas. And so that's why I don't get too personal. I get personal, but not too personal in the presentation. Um, if someone is interested in the time period that you tend to concentrate on, this um, the 19th century and all, what would you say is the most difficult thing about dealing with that era? And then from your perspective, the most rewarding? Well, the difficult thing is to kind of keep your composure <laughs> as you're writing about this stuff. It can, it's really stunning in a way. Stunning is not what the word is. It's just so dismaying to see how much hatred and how much contempt that people had for Black people during that time period. The idea that you could make people like property and treat them like property and and separate them from their children and their spouses and their loved ones and, you know, use them like, like their property, that they are things instead of human beings. And so that can be frustrating and tough to absorb. Mm -hmm. And I think I have probably, and I think people who write about slavery, sometimes I, I think we become used to, in a way, this, and when we, when people who don't write about it read these things and are just like freaked out totally, it, it reminds us that you know we have seen this so much that we don't have that kind of reaction. And I don't know that that's always a good thing not to be perpetually outraged by. It. But you can't do the work effectively if you let your emotions take over you too much. But it's hard to do because these are people, and this I'm talking about my great great grandparents and my ancestors and that's the tough part about it but i think by recovering the stories of these people you're bearing witness to their struggle to what happened to them and that's a good thing to do they shouldn't be abandoned and let people pretend or hide the fact that this happened and so my difficulties are our difficulties in the face of this or thinking about that pale in comparison to the people who lived this experience and didn't give up or if they gave up they never they didn't give up enough not to have us right <laughs> to have children who exactly. go on to become us and yeah, there would be no us but for them it'd be no us but for them and so somebody has to make sure their stories are told and that i think that's the rewarding thing about it you know, I'm happy that people now think about Madison Hemings or Sally Hemings and James Hemings 
those people as people apart from Jefferson in their own right and think about their family and how they felt about one another. You can see it, they're all naming one another after their brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and cousins. They're trying to keep this notion of family together. And I think that their efforts should be recognized and uh, rewarded. That was award-winning historian and educator Annette Gordon-Reed, author of On Juneteenth, published by Live Right in May 2021. This Zoom interview was recorded on July 9th of this year. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, have a wonderful day.